It's a little known fact, but probably most of you don't know, that when Jesus was choosing his 12 disciples, he also used a consulting firm. And in fact, I have the letter of recommend that they sent to Jesus as he was choosing his disciples. And so the Jordan Management Consultants. <laughs> this is serious stuff. So, <laughs> they did not have a website back then, man. They do have a zip code, which I find curious, but that's another story. Dear Sir, addressed to Jesus. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. Aren't you glad they were so thorough? <laughs> the profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service and for your guidance, we make some general comments, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given the bits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man don't blow the punchline. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. Um, that, that letter should come as no surprise if you follow the disciples of the Gospels, right? No surprise. And when you look at these 12 guys, and we're going to look at this portion in Mark chapter 3 in just a minute. But when you look at these 12 men, and you follow them through the four Gospels... The question that logically occurs to me at least, maybe not to you, is what was Jesus thinking when he chose these 12 guys? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through these 12 guys and talk about why did you, Jesus choose these men? Because if it were up to me, I think I would have done what these consultants recommended and continued my search looking for more qualified people. The God that you and I serve, the Lord Jesus that we love and follow, chooses common, ordinary people to accomplish uncommon and extraordinary things. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad for that. Jesus chooses common, ordinary people to do uncommon 
and extraordinary things. That's what Jesus is up to. So I want you to come with me this morning to Mark chapter 3. And uh, let's look together at this uh, little glimpse into the life of of Jesus and the life of the disciples. And uh, see kind of what's going on here. Mark chapter 3, and I want to jump in where we left off last week at uh, verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. I don't know that this is really what's going on in Mark's Gospel But one of the things I noticed in verses 7 to 12, before we're told that Jesus chooses these 12 men, the emphasis, as I'm reading this passage, the emphasis in Mark's mind is great multitude, verse 7, great number, verse 8, the crowd, verse 9, many, verse 10. The repeated thought in this passage is that the multitudes are coming to Jesus. He's one person. And I think in Mark's gospel, at least what impresses me is this massive amounts of people. And Jesus needed some help, right? And so he calls these twelve to be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so I want you to think with me this morning about these twelve men. When you think of Simon Peter... In the Gospels, what what are the first things that kind of come to your mind as you think of Simon? As you think of Peter, the big fisherman, the natural leader. Um, he's often often been called the apostle with the foot shaped mouth. Um, <laughs> Peter was the kind of guy who acted or said something and then thought about it, instead of thinking about it and then not saying it, not doing it. Peter was kind of impetuous, impulsive. Uh, he, he was the impulsive disciple who got out of the boat when Jesus was walking on the water, right? Lord, call me and I'll come to you. And he jumps out of the boat. We kind of criticize him because he starts to sink, but he's the only one to cut out the boat, right? Peter's the impulsive guy, the impetuous one. It's Peter... When Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and the elders are going to, I'm going to get handed over to the elders, the chief priests, and I'm going to die. And Peter's response to that was what? May it never happen. No. 
He rebukes the Lord. No. And what does Jesus say to Peter? You're behind me and he calls him Satan. Of course, Peter is famous for being in the courtyard where Jesus was on trial around the fire, warming himself in the evening and denying Jesus three times. Peter, great potential. In fact, Jesus renamed Simon Peter, which means what? Rock. So Jesus saw something in Peter that was solid. He saw something in Peter he could count on. Peter was the rock. We're told that Peter died crucified upside down in Rome. Didn't want to be crucified like Jesus was and asked to be turned upside down. Jesus chose Peter. Why did he choose Peter? Well, we probably find a lot of good reasons. Peter was a disappointment here. He was a hero here. Book of Acts opens and what happens to Peter? Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people come to know Jesus. He and John go to the great beautiful, the gate beautiful in chapter 3 of Acts. And they, they heal that paralyzed guy. And they get hauled in front of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin tells them to stop speaking in Jesus' name. And what do they say? Must obey God rather than men. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we see Peter in this rocky kind of a journey. The next two on the list are James and John. Two brothers. Part of a wealthy commercial fishing enterprise in the Sea of Galilee. They grew up in a family that had means. They worked hard. They were fishermen, as was Peter. And Jesus names them that weird word, Bonergase, which means tumult or wrath, sons of thunder. And you see that in, in, in both of their lives. Uh, James really was kind of the leader of the two. Perhaps he was the older, I don't know. But James, <laughs> James is the one when uh, Jesus was planning a trip through Samaria and the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with Jesus. James and John come to Jesus and they say, Shall we call down fire from heaven on them? James wasn't known for compassion. James wasn't known for, you know, his patience. He was, he was kind of fiery. In fact, when they asked if they could sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand in the kingdom, and Jesus said, are, are you ready to be baptized with what I'm going to face? And James was right there. I'm ready! Oh yeah? They only knew what was coming, right? James, his brother John was different. Um, you think of John, what do you think of? John beloved. Yeah, he was the beloved disciple. And that phrase, the beloved disciple, um, <laughs> I find it curious that James seemed, to, uh, John rather, seemed to evidence kind of a, a sectarian, separatistic spirit. Um, in fact, our men studied this passage last Tuesday morning where um, John comes to Jesus very proud of himself and very excited. We found a guy casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. <laughs> Why did he do that? Because that guy wasn't a part of the group. He didn't, you know, he wasn't part of the team. And what did Jesus say? Hopefully one of those guys that was awake at 6.30 last Tuesday remembers. Jesus said what? Whoever is for us is not 
There you go. You're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. If he's for me, he's part of, part of the group. But that was John. We stopped that guy. John went from that violent, angry son of thunder to be overwhelmed and in awe of Jesus' love and became the apostle of love, the beloved apostle. Tradition tells us that John, in his old years, had to be carried. He couldn't walk, had to be carried to services as the believers would gather. And as the Apostle John was brought into the service, he was often asked to speak. And he always had one thing to say. Love one another. Love one another. Of course, you know the story of John. He was, he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he died. Um, Peter, James, and John were the inner circle. The three that were the closest to Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. Who was it when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was arrested? And he pulled three disciples aside to go with him while he prayed. Who were those three? Peter, James, and John. They, they were like the inner circle. The closest of the twelve. And there may be other examples I'm not remembering. So we have Peter, we have James, we have John. Who's next? Oh, Andrew. Andrew's claim to fame was what? Uh, he's, he's Peter's little brother. <laughs> How'd you like to go through life being someone's little brother? You know, uh, some of us have had to do that. Thankfully, I'm a firstborn, so I never experienced that. But Andrew is a fascinating, fascinating person. The name Andrew, by anyone know what the name Andrew means? Any Andrews? One of you has a son named Andrew. Andrew means manly. That was Andrew's name. By the way, you can guess there's a female counterpart to the name Andrew. And so if you ever meet a woman named Andrea, that name means logically what? Womanly. There you go. That wasn't a hard hard question to answer. And I've benefited from that for over 50 years. So that's a good thing, right? Uh, Where was I? Oh, Andrew Manley. Um, Andrew comes on the scene in the Gospels as a follower of John the Baptist. So as a follower of John the Baptist, Andrew is a very devoted religious man. He is pursuing God. He is seeking spiritual advantage in his life. And he's found that in John the Baptist. And Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. Alongside of who? John, the brother James. So we see in the Gospel of John, here's Andrew... And John, following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points at Jesus with those great words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what do James and An- or John and Andrew do? We're done with John the Baptist. We're following Jesus. And so they left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. One of the first two to follow. By the way, what's the first thing Andrew, Andrew did? He went and got his brother Simon and said to Simon, what? We found the Messiah. Come along. He also went and got Philip. We found the Messiah. Every time you find Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He brings his brother Simon. He brings Philip. Who was it when Jesus sent the 5,000 that brought the little boy with the lunch to Jesus? Who did that? Andrew. 
Later in John's Gospel, some Greeks come and want to meet Jesus. Andrew takes them to Jesus. That's the pattern in Andrew's life. Nothing spectacular, nothing big and bold and whatever, but he's constantly bringing people to Jesus. The thing about Andrew that I find fascinating is you see no evidence of him being envious of being just outside that inner circle. Peter, James, and John, on every list of the twelve, who's number four? Andrew, right outside that circle. But he served Jesus, followed Jesus all of his life. Tradition tells us, I have to look at my notes because I forget. Um, Andrew preached in a province where the governor's wife came to faith. And the governor told his wife to recant and to recant her faith in Jesus. She refused, so what did the governor do? <laughs> well, he had Andrew killed. And uh, hung him on a cross for two days, where he spent two days on the cross, guess what? Preaching about Jesus. Peter, James, John, Andrew. And then there's Philip. Philip. Philip is the practical guy. He's the pragmatic guy. He's the analytical guy. Um, Philip went to Nathaniel and told Nathaniel, we found a Messiah. Why did Philip do that? Well, as we look at his character, that, that was the logical thing to do. We found the Messiah. My friend Nathaniel needs to know. Who was it at the feeding of the 5,000 that calculated how many Happy Meals they would need to feed the crowd? <laughs> Who was that, Philip? He didn't calculate Jesus' power. He calculated the cost of food. That. That was Philip. He was the analytical, practical, problem-solving kind of guy. Um, he preached in Asia Minor and uh, was martyred there. Uh, the next one on the list is Bartholomew, also Nathaniel. Nathaniel is an interesting guy because we don't know a whole lot about him. But one of the things we do know about him was he was a little prejudiced. Had a little bit of a, of a racial prejudice class status kind of a thing. When, when Philip came to Nathaniel and he said to Nathaniel, uh, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said what? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yuck! We don't know a whole lot about Nathaniel, but uh, that, that doesn't speak well uh, of him. But uh, I love the fact that even though he was a little prejudiced, he quickly came to faith. He quickly changed his mind and quickly responded to Jesus. I like that about Nathaniel. Tradition tells us he died by flogging. He was beaten, body put in a sack, and thrown into the sea. But he served Jesus to the end. The next one on the list is Matthew. Now, we, we looked at Matthew just two Sundays ago, I think, right? Levi, the tax collector, renamed Matthew. And when you think of Matthew, I won't even ask you what you remember from two weeks ago. You probably wouldn't know if we talked about it yesterday, right? But if you remember, I'm going to just assume for a minute you remember. Is that okay? So if you remember when we looked at the life of Matthew and Jesus called, and Jesus called him out of his, his tax booth to follow him, Matthew, as a tax collector, was despised 
by the Jewish people. Matthew was in the employ of the Roman government, and his task was to do what? Get taxes. And so there were income taxes. There were road taxes. There were fishing taxes. If you want to put up a tank in downtown Jerusalem, there's taxes to be paid. That's no surprise because there's those now today, right? And so Matthew's job was collecting taxes. And everybody hated him. Outcasts. Tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogue. Tax collectors were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were deemed to be liars. Untrustworthy. And so here's Matthew the tax collector in the employee of the Roman government. Hated. And he leaves and follows Jesus. And you saw a few weeks ago, what's the first thing that Matthew did? What's the first thing Levi did when he followed Jesus? He had a big party. Invited all his friends to come and meet Jesus. You have to love that, right? And so here's Jesus at Levi's home. And crammed into the home are all the rest of the tax collectors and everybody else in the community that would be deemed sinners. Prostitutes. Outcasts. They have no acceptance in the community at large. Matthew was following Jesus. Uh, He was martyred, we believe, in Ethiopia. Thomas is the next one on the list. When you hear the name Thomas, you always think of what word? Doubter. Thomas the Doubter. He's also called in the scriptures Didymus, which means twin. So obviously he was a twin. And his claim to fame was he was a doubter. So what do skeptics and doubters, what, what kind of motivates them? What moves them? What controls their decision making? Facts. Data. Proof. Information, And so here's Thomas, and, and he's the one in uh, John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I'm going to go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back, and when I come back I'll let you know. And, and Thomas is the one who says, well, what are you talking about? We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And of course, in the scriptures, that, that paves the way for what great verse I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that's Thomas, looking for information, looking for data, looking for proof. Not a very uh, likely candidate for, you know, being really high on the faith scale, right? He was one of those who would have to say with me, Lord, help my unbelief, right? He, He struggled with that faith thing. He was the skeptic, the doubter. And that's why after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the twelve, or the eleven, Judas wasn't there, then it was only ten, because guess who wasn't there? Thomas. And so Jesus comes to the disciples, reveals himself to them, they're all excited. Thomas wasn't there. So the next time they see Thomas, they're telling Thomas, guess what? We saw Jesus! And Thomas rejoiced and celebrated, right? No. What did Thomas say? Unless I see the prince in his hands and the mark in his side. No, not believe it. So don't you love what happens next? Now Thomas is with the disciples and Jesus appears in their midst. And he says to Thomas, behold, my hands, my side. I don't think Thomas needed to reach forth his hand and touch Jesus. I think the eyes were enough. And he responds and says, My Lord, my God. 
Here's the skeptic, the doubter. He's come full circle, right? He's a believer now. Interesting tradition tells us of Thomas that he uh, preached in India and was martyred there. And he was killed when a spear was thrust into his side and he died. And I just find it a little, I don't know if irony is the right word or coincidental. I don't live in coincidences. It's interesting that the disciple who demanded to see the spear wound in Jesus' side died with a spear in the side. That's what tradition says. Thomas. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, called James the Less. How would you like to be called Ron the Less? <laughs> Jessica the Less? Um, some have suggested that maybe he was called James the Less because he was short. You know, he was, he was small. And that's possible. Others suggest he was called James the Less because he was not James the number one leader dude with Peter and, and John. Whatever the reason, we don't know much about this man. He doesn't get involved in the scriptures at all. His name doesn't pop up many times except in these lists. He didn't write any books of scripture. We, 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 just, we, know, we know almost nothing um, about him. I, I, call, I call James the less the invisible disciple. Not much is known about him. Didn't accomplish anything of note that we know about. Of course, Jesus sent him out and he preached as the others did. But nothing remarkable. And yet, if we understand the scriptures, all 12 of the apostles are going to be sitting on thrones in heaven, right? So there's Peter, James, and John. They get their throne. Guess what? James the less gets his too. God uses common, ordinary people to accomplish uncommon and extraordinary things. That's always been the pattern. Oh, then there's Thaddeus. This guy has more names than you can believe. I, I kind of think the name Thaddeus and the other name that Matthew mentions, Labius, um, were kind of nicknames because he's also called Judas, the son of James. Or he's called Judas, parentheses, not Iscariot. So it, it's interesting that the name um, Thaddeus means breast child. And would have been a name probably given to him by older siblings because he was the baby of the family. He was, he was the breast child. And the other name, uh, Labius, means heart child, which is interesting. You have breast and heart, kind of, you know, same location here. But the idea of heart child was a word that spoke to courage. That this was a person of courage. And so I wonder if these are nicknames. One that was given to him perhaps growing up by his older siblings. The other later in life because he had demonstrated courage. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating. Uh, but he's called Judas, son of James. And he wasn't the Judas who betrayed Jesus. The only, the only time we see this Judas is in John chapter 14. <laughs> When he says to Jesus, how come you manifest yourself to us, but you don't want to manifest yourself to the world? What was his concern for Jesus? You need to get on the public stage. You need to get in the spotlight. You need to be in the forefront. Well, by this time in the life of Jesus, he's, 
He's trying to avoid the spotlight and kind of skirt around the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and so on. But that was in the heart of Judas, that Jesus would be out there in, in, the, in the spotlight. Oh, this Judas, yeah. And then there's Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is probably the extreme opposite of Matthew. Matthew's over here. He's in the employee of Rome, an employee of Rome, working on behalf of Rome. And here's Simon the Zealot over here. And his ambition is what? Overthrow the Roman government. He's a part of this, this, this group of violent uh, insurrectionists that want to get Rome out of Israel and elsewhere. And here's these two extreme political positions. And they're walking with Jesus. Somehow they found room to get along. And as, as I say that, I'm reminded that we're, we're, all, we're all not on the same page politically when we gather on Sunday mornings. But we, we, we're, we're following Jesus together, right? Some of us may be over here with Matthew. Some of us over here with Simon. Uh, nothing else is known about Simon. Why did he follow Jesus? I think he was hoping Jesus would provide the liberation from Rome. And then the last on the list every time is who? Judas Iscariot. And as I was reading this uh, letter of reference that the Jordan Management Consultant sent to Jesus, I thought, you know, they really kind of nailed it. Judas was responsible. Judas was trusted. Um, How did he become the treasurer of the group? They trusted him. He had a background that, you know, you'd think Matthew would be used to handling money. Maybe they didn't trust Matthew because he was a tax collector. But they trusted Judas. They had confidence in him. Judas traveled with Jesus for three years, like the others. Saw the miracles Jesus performed, heard everything Jesus taught. What motivated Judas? Maybe motivated like Simon the Zealot, overthrow of Rome. We don't really know. Maybe he saw it as an opportunity for self-advancement. Don't know. But Jesus chose... These 12 guys. Why? In fact, he spent the whole night in, <clears throat> he spent the whole night in prayer before he chose them. So did Jesus like make a mistake with this group of guys? Should have listened to the consulting company and kept searching. <laughs> Jesus don't make no mistakes, thank you. So We've considered why, or we've considered the twelve apostles that Jesus chose. I'd like you to consider next another fundamental question: Why did Jesus choose you and me? I love the story I heard many years ago. Now, Professor Howard Hendricks. Howard taught at Dallas Theological Seminary for years, was an amazing man. Um, I used to get his tapes back in the 70s and listen to his classes, and he just was a phenomenal teacher. And he was teaching class one day at the seminary in Dallas, and one of his students stopped him and said, Prof, I have a question. And uh, Dr. Hendricks said, yes, what's your question? He says, I don't understand... 
Why did Jesus choose Judas? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it. I don't understand. Why did Jesus do that? And Hendrick said, <clears throat> I've got several answers to that question, but I have even a more important question. Why did Jesus choose you? <laughs> when the laughter died down, Dr. Hendrick said, I have an even more important question. Why did Jesus choose me? Dave read a portion of scripture for us this morning in John chapter 15, where Jesus tells his disciples, um, you haven't chosen me. I chose you. you. You didn't choose. I chose. I chose you that I might send you forth to preach. Mark says in this chapter, in Mark chapter 13, he chose 12 that they would be with him and that he would send them forth. And as I read that passage, <clears throat> what strikes me is there's two reasons why Jesus chose you and why Jesus chose me. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, that God has chosen the weak and base things of the world to confound the wise. Is that encouraging to you? But Jesus chose you and me for two reasons. That we might be with him and that he might send us forth to preach. And so that raises two questions in my little, my little brain as I read that verse. If Jesus chose me, first of all, to be with him, then the question I would ask myself and I ask you this morning is, how much time did you invest in the last seven days being with Jesus? It's one of the reasons why he called you to himself. That's one of the reasons why he chose you, to be with him. Are you with him on a regular, daily basis? Spending time in his word, time in prayer, time with him. The second reason why he chose you and he chose me is that he might send us forth. Are we spending time with him? And are we looking for opportunity every day to engage people in conversation about Jesus? Might not happen every day, but is that my ambition? To be with him? And to go forward. That's why Jesus chose the twelve. And that's why Jesus chose you and me. I can tell you why Jesus didn't choose them. Um, <clears throat> he didn't choose them because of the depth of their spiritual understanding, insight, and wisdom, right? On a scale of one to ten, how insightful spiritually were they in the three years they spent with Jesus? Two, pretty weak, they didn't evidence. He didn't choose them because of their great, all-encompassing faith. On a scale of one to ten, how strong was their faith and trust in Jesus? Pretty weak. You know, how many times did Jesus say to them, Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> no, it wasn't their great faith. It wasn't their great humility and concern for others. You read through the Gospels, and it's like, the disciples really aren't too concerned about others. When they were together, what did they talk about? Which one's the greatest? Yeah, talk about themselves. Which one of us is the greatest? What was their focus? 
What's in this for me? Uh, it wasn't because of the strength of their commitment, their great power and abilities. They were common, ordinary guys. Just like you and me. Common, ordinary people. God chooses common, ordinary people to do uncommon and extraordinary things. So why did He choose them? So I wrote to myself, He takes all men who honestly seek Him, not just the sharp, overachiever types. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus doesn't just pick the sharpest, workaholic, best-looking types, right? Someone say, right, okay, I'm just tracking here. Um, he chose them because he had a purpose, he had a mission. That's why he chose them, that's why he chose you and me. Uh, he chose them because he sees beyond the, the present to the potential. Jesus chose you to follow him because he sees in you and in you and in you potential to make a difference in the world in which we live. A guy by the name of Longfellow could take a common, ordinary piece of paper and write a poem on it. Make it worth millions. A mechanic can take a piece of metal and make a part for an engine. Great skill. Artists can take a piece of canvas and paint a picture. Again, worth thousands of dollars. But Jesus can take a worthless, sinful life, wash it in his blood, and put his spirit in it, and make it an infinite worth. <laughs> what Jesus wants to prove, what Jesus wants you and me to understand, is that the power isn't in us, it's in him. It's not a matter of how capable you are, how intelligent you are, how skilled you are, how talented you are. It matters who Jesus is. The story is told of a great concert violinist who was known for the phenomenal music that he could produce with a violin. He was also known, secondly, because he owned a $20,000 violin. This was many years ago now. A violin that was worth 20 million. And this great concert violinist would come out on the stage and begin his presentation. And he would play his first number. And the crowd would respond in applause. And he would throw the violin down and stomp it into pieces. To the horror of the crowd. And as that little episode took place, a man would enter from off stage carrying another violin, and as he came onto the stage, he would explain to the crowd, that's a $20 violin. This is the $20,000 violin. It doesn't matter which violin is played, it matters whose hands the violin is in. And so, the question that occurs to me this morning is this. Are you and I fully available to God? Are we, have we fully placed ourselves in His hands to be used by Him? We're just simply $20 violins, right? 
couple of you might be $25 violins, I get that. I'm just a $20 violin that God wants to use for His glory. What we need is more $20 violins placed in Jesus' hands. Lord, I pray this morning that you would simply speak into our hearts, speak into us this simple, simple truth. It's always been true, it'll always be true. You choose to use common, ordinary people to accomplish uncommon, extraordinary things. And I would ask in this moment that you might speak into our hearts, into our lives. We offer ourselves to you, Lord. We're, we're just $20 violins. Just $20 violins. But we place ourselves afresh into your hands this morning to do what you ask us to do, to go where you ask us to go, to be who you ask us to be. Lord, we celebrate together the simple truth. <laughs> you can do phenomenal things with $20 violins. You did phenomenal things through the lives of these disciples, these apostles. Phenomenal things. And you want to do that in my life, in each of our lives, for your glory. Do that is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.